I invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1 as we continue in our sermon series here in Jeremiah. And what was read for us a few moments ago in our scripture reading was the second major message that the prophet Jeremiah shared with Judah. And it was during the reign of Josiah, uh, king of Judah, which means that it was in Jeremiah's early years as a prophet. Josiah had become king after the reigns of his wicked grandfather, Manasseh, who sinned horribly, but later repented while he was in captivity. And his father, Ammon, who was equally wicked, but yet did not learn the lessons of his father's captivity and repent. Josiah, as I mentioned in week one of this sermon series, was very young when he came to the throne. It's believed that he was nine years of age, but he proved to be a godly king, leading uh, Judah to, to turn back to the God of their fathers. But their return was only superficial. On the outside, they said all the right things. They worshiped at the temple. They followed the prescribed ceremonial rituals. They participated in all the festivals, but they still worshiped false gods on the side. It was what the Apostle Paul called a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. In this chapter, we find God's view on the human condition. In fact, Jeremiah's prophecy here should evoke reflection in our own hearts. God has formed his people so that we might have an exclusive relationship with him. This we see reflected in the text Jeremiah uses here because he's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about family. He's going to talk about fatherhood. He's going to talk about children. This is an intimate conversation here. And behind the assumption here in Jeremiah of this exclusive bond behind, between us and God and in the text between Israel and God is the claim of God to, to, to divine choice. See, the first commandment in the Decalogue, and remember, the Decalogue is a Greek word. That means ten terms. That means the ten commandments. And the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And then there's the Shema, which devout Israelites would recite three times a day. And by the way, Jesus re reiterated that in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. See, God has formed us for this intimate, exclusive relationship with Him. And in last week's message, as in today's, we see the Lord's patience, and we see His tender mercy and gracious character admonishing His privileged people to return to faithful covenant obedience. I must say that it is shocking and almost incomprehensible to see the persistent idolatry and spiritual apostasy of the northern kingdom, which is referred to here, Israel, which is no more at the time of this prophecy, and the southern kingdom, Judah, who's being addressed here. That's who's being talked to as it's using the example of the northern kingdom. It's just hard to believe what they practiced in their apostasy. Yet this passage also reminds us of the stubbornness of our own hearts in choosing the temporary pleasures of this world and the temporary pleasures of sin over the lasting joy of fellowship with Christ. As we learned in last week's passage in Jeremiah chapter 2, how quickly we can turn away from God, from the fountain of living water to broken cisterns. 
the cisterns of this world. You know, the theme in Jeremiah 3 is obvious. God is pleading for his people to repent of their sin, their idolatry, their sin of going against commandment number one, to have no other gods before them. He's asking them to repent of that and to return to him. Now, the word in Hebrew for repent occurs here nine times in this passage, and it's often translated as return. You'll see it in verse 1 two times there. You see it in verse 7. You see it in verse 12. You see it in verse 22. And this pericope actually extends all the way to chapter 4, verse 4. So that's this really section of Scripture, and it occurs two times there. But there's more. There's more. The word backsliding is also used here. And six times it's used, and it means faithlessness in the Hebrew language or a turning away from God. And it's actually a cousin to the word repent. It's a form of the phrase repent, but instead of turning away from sin to God, this word means they're turning from God to sin. So it's a cousin here. And six times we see this used here. Uh, In verse 6, it's translated, you see, as faithless. In verse 8, in verse 11, in verse 12. In fact, let me read verse 12 for you at this moment. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, that's the word for repent, and faithless is this other word that's played off against it. Uh, Israel declares the Lord, I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. And in verse 14, it does that same thing, playing these two off of each other. And again in verse 22, the word faithless is repeated. Now the northern kingdom is no more. And northern kingdom was called Israel, the ten northern tribes. The southern kingdom was called Judah. That's the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And here the name Israel is the affectionate covenant name for the only children that God has left in the promised land to speak of. And the message of this text is loud and clear. God wants his children to repent of their sin and return to him. And so doing, the prophet returns here to the metaphor of marriage that God used in the first prophetic uh, oracle that we have here that was in chapter 2. And he returns to the unfaithful wife. But this time God introduces the subject of divorce. And the Mosaic law permitted a man to uh, dismiss his wife, divorce his wife, but it did not allow him to marry again, her again. Now, under certain circumstances, listen to this in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, which means something very immoral or something, uh, because he finds something indecent about her, um, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. God had every right to reject his people because they had abandoned him, not in the order to marry another husband, but in order to play play the harlot 
with many lovers. That's the title of her message. The people had gone up to the hills. They had built shrines and dedicated themselves to foreign gods. They acted worse than common prostitutes who waited along the roadside uh, for their johns to come to them, their clients. Judah actually went out and pursued their clients, pursued their johns, their false gods, and they repeatedly committed spiritual adultery with them. Chapter 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife, we're going to go through verse 5, and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you've lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see. Is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers. You sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me my father, my friend, from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. At the end of this chapter, the prophet Jeremiah sees very clearly what Judah is going to learn uh, through the harsh experience of their defeat and devastation at the hands of the Babylonians and their subsequent 70 years of captivity in Babylon. What he sees is what James spoke of in James chapter 4, verse 4, that friendship with the world means enmity. With God, And what the Apostle Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Hence, Jeremiah chastises his generation for their Baal worship. You know, we often say Baal. The Baal worship. The so-called God of fertility. And in this Canaanite religion, the main emphasis was on fertility and sex. So worship was entered into in, in order to ensure the fertility of the land, to ensure the fertility of all their livestock and their animals, and to ensure the fertility of their people. So sacred prostitution was practiced widely in this religion. And you know, men are historically and notoriously uh, lesser involved in religion. The history of the church is there's more men, women and children in the church than there's ever been men. Well, this false God's answer to this new Church, New Testament church dilemma in these Old Testament times was to offer ladies of the evening to, as enticement. And the Israelite men were accepting of this ritual. And they were participating in droves. Look at what verse 9 says here in our text. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. Mattered so little. They took it so lightly. Have you ever done that with some sin in your life? You took it so lightly. Didn't really matter that much. Didn't think it was a big deal. Only to find out later on that the price was pretty high. Taking something lightly that cost you dearly later on. You know, some people cross sexual lines in dating. And they end up with an unintended pregnancy. So some choose abortion. Or others have 18 years of child support. And, and, a, and a son or a daughter many times who grows up to hate them in the end as a result of that. You, other people end up in a lifelong miserable marriage because of crossing those lines. I, for one, think that our culture actually takes the issue of legalized marijuana 
too lightly. And yes, I understand the medicinal uses of pot, and that's always been controlled and available, but the issue that taking it lightly is that marijuana is a gateway drug to all kinds of other drugs. And many people who get hooked on a stronger and other drugs all started, first of all, with a little bit of marijuana. And states thought they could gain tax revenue, and they thought they could govern this by doing this, and now all of a sudden the door to drug cartels has been opened wide, and distributors, you don't even know what's coming in, and they're not getting the tax revenue. They've got a mess on their hands, and they can't control it, taking it too lightly. Jeremiah, in the last verse of chapter 3, verse 25, says, but all worship is a shameful thing. And Judah is going to realize this once they're removed to the promised land, or from the promised land and held in captivity in Babylon. And some Bible translators like to translate Baal, the God of worship, of course, lowercase, as the shameful God, the God of shame. Verse 25, let me read it for you here. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We've sinned against the Lord our God. Both we and our ancestors from our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. And you know the thing about sin is that it carries with it utter confusion. God has created us with a very specific purpose. And sin either removes that purpose or it minimizes and confuses the real reason why we're even on this earth in the first place. Living in sin is sort of like a carpenter trying to be a computer programmer. It doesn't fit who the person is. If someone sincerely believes that they're a computer programmer and not a carpenter, but all their gifts and training and experience is all in carpentry, they're confused about their very nature. See, people who try to be who they are not by chasing after worldly pleasures and serving their own fleshly desires, this is, this is confusing. And it confuses a person uh, about the person God has made them to be. And if you doubt me on this, take time to read Pastor Nathan's uh, article in The Connection this month. Pastor Nathan, who loves young people and is working with young people very diligently, is trying to encourage parents to teach their children how to work. And in so doing, there needs to be some limits. Video gaming and technology and how much time is spent on that and entertainment and leisure, etc. But if you are one of the folks out there who complain that young people can't work anymore, they don't even know how to work now. We've got a whole generation that can't work. You'll find that if we all, we all have something we can do to help. And part of this is parents and grandparents actually doing a better job of modeling of teaching this and of setting limits so that young people can live into the identity that God has for them as workers and not be confused about that. And just one suggestion, don't read the article right now while I'm preaching, okay? Just one. And also don't pretend to get up and go to the bathroom so you can beat the crowds to get a hard copy before uh, everybody leaves today. See, God has placed a desire in every human heart to be with him. God has designed every human being to worship and praise him. To fail to do that is to give something else devotion, something else worship, and instead of the one true God. And it means that we leave part of our being, part of our nature, unfulfilled. And this is why people are often experience uncertainty or, or, or unhappiness or even uneasiness in the times of their sinning. And that is something that cannot be removed without repentance, no matter how long someone denies and no matter how hard someone tries to overlook this. See, God alone satisfies us. God alone. 
completes us. God alone gives us peace that surpasses human understanding. God alone gives contentment no matter what the circumstances of our life may be. And to think that we can somehow live without God or without being fully devoted to God is to be confused about the very creation and what truly satisfies our souls. See, God has designed us to be in a relationship with Him. And when we miss out on this fellowship with Him, we miss out on the very purpose of our existence and the very fullness of what that existence is truly meant to be. Now, Judah was on the brink of missing up on this and also losing their community of fellow Israelites. And yet God, in one last effort, with outstretched arms, is inviting Judah to return to Him. Now, Jeremiah is an incredible prophet. Some, even in Jesus' time on earth, thought Jesus might be Jeremiah. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus asked his disciples when they came to Caesarea Philippi, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say uh, Elijah. Others, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. No other prophets are named here. And some say that this remarkable prophet Jeremiah could be writing about present-day America right now. He could be the ancient prophet for modern times. And yet, in these darkest moments, he held out good news that God wanted uh, Judah back. And God, just like God, wants us back when we stray from him. Even though God is under no obligation. That's what the text tells us. God is under no obligation to take us back. You know, in verses 6 through 8, you can just glance at them quickly for time's sake. I won't read them. Judah watched God allow Assyria to ravage Israel, the northern kingdom. And they took the brightest and the best away so that no one would be able to lead a revolt against Assyria. And then they sent Assyrians to infiltrate the land. And before long, they were marrying Assyrians and Jews and Assyrians marrying. And that's how we ended up with Samaritans. Then look at verses 9 through 10. Again, I won't take the time to read that. But sibling Judah returned to God only in pretense. They saw that. It's like, oh, that's bad. So they returned to God like the person who comes to church just to keep their spouse happy or because it socially looks good for them to go to church or I'm doing it because of my children or I come to church to keep my parents happy. You know, I've got a drug problem. Every time the church is open, my parents drag me to church. I got a drug problem. But I do it to keep them happy. Well, look at verse 11 here. I'll read that one for you. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. That's jarring. That's very jarring. You know, at least though the northern kingdom had enough integrity to be honest about their sin. Uh, what, what Judah was doing was playing the religion game. They were playing the church game and, and just covering up. Verses 12 and 13 are the invitation. Again, if you look at them to return. And all it says here, you can come to me. You just have to acknowledge your guilt. And verses 14 and 15, let's read those. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. And then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Now, this is looking down the road. 
post-captivity, but it's also foreshadowing for us the New Testament times with shepherds and pastors because when a church assembles, it needs to be governed, it needs to be guided. Pastors lead and direct God's sheep with knowledge, which means in the fear of the Lord. And this shepherd's mind is to conform to the will of God. This is, of course, in contrast to the corrupt leaders in Jeremiah's time, which we learned about in last week's sermon. Chapter 2, verse 8. You can read that again on your own time. But this is telling us that shepherds and pastors are an extension of God's care for us. That shepherds help supply the wisdom and knowledge that we, that we need to live in God's presence, as we should. It says here that true shepherds are the ones who obey me, and are according to my choice. Shepherds are not saviors. They're just people who've been raised up by the good shepherd to feed and lead God's sheep. True shepherds are a gift from God himself. And look at verse 16. In those days when their, your numbers have been increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered uh, or be missed, or another one will not be made. The Ark of the Covenant will not be restored. It will no longer be needed as a symbol of God's presence. And then verses 17 through 25, again, you can read through them again on your own. But chapter 4, I want to mention and read that for you, verses 1 through 4. If you, Israel, will return, and then re return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight, and no longer go astray, and if in truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Israel, or... My wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Now the prophecy ends here with an ultimatum. Repent and experience restoration or prepare to face the wrath of God. And two metaphors are used here to demonstrate the need for repentance. Hearts are like, are, are like unplowed ground. They're hard-packed soil. They're unproductive. They're, even when you sow, you're sowing among thorns. In our area, they'd say you're sowing among buckthorn because it's such an invasive species right now. It's all over public land and private land. And everywhere I hunt, I got to clear it away from places I'm hunting because I'm getting poked everywhere by this, this buckthorn that's out there. But the second metaphor here is a need to be circumcised, and it's really uh, addressing circumcision of the heart. See, the external act of circumcision was done on the eighth day when an Israelite boy was given his name and declared to be part of the covenant community. But if you really want to be a part of the covenant community, circumcision that Jeremiah is proposing here is of the heart to remove your hearts of flesh, your hearts that are prone to sin, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire. That's the ultimatum. Now, Jeremiah has been called the most human of all the prophets, because we know more about him personally than any other prophets in the Bible. But I also think it's because he so closely identifies the human condition apart from God. And he puts a finger on human behavior itself in all of his writings. So let's apply today what Jeremiah teaches us about our God. 
Because in New Testament times, Christians are the bride of Christ. And adultery, in a theological sense, is a crime against God's grace. It is infidelity against God, who in Christ has called us into fellowship with Him and to live for Him. Judgment is also the inevitable consequence of failure to turn to the Lord in faith and obedience. Human beings cannot have it both ways. Either we have an intimate, exclusive relationship with God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, or we have other gods that capture our commitments, ultimately our allegiances. Andrew Dearman writes, Christian reflection should begin with a search for those things that seduce believers uh, from allegiance to Christ, things of a personal and even a corporate nature. What is, for example, what is it, for example, about modern Western society that pulls Christians from their relationship with Jesus and robs them of the joy of obedience to their Lord? What things in our lives, both personal and corporate, are those that should be seen as warning bells that things are not right? What, what, what warnings do you have on your dashboard that are telling you this isn't right? This isn't what God wants. Are there not signs, he says, that warn that failure has consequences? Do you hear what this theologian is saying? Any warning signs in your life of any divided allegiances? Yes, repentance means renunciation of sin, of evil deeds, of wrongdoing, and of embracing the world's values. But do you realize that repentance is also a positive step of discipleship? At Pentecost, Peter stood up to preach to the crowds, and he said in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. See, repentance is not just simply listing vices to be avoided. It is a movement toward a deeper life in Christ. It's not simply an act relegated to the past, When a person comes to faith, oh, I repented of that. It's a way of life. It's a mark of discipleship. And God is the author of this, and he uses repentance to mature and strengthen his children. So is repentance a regular part of your life? Is it part of your Christian discipleship? I hope and pray so, because this passage in Jeremiah 3 speaks about what is legally impermissible. From Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Please know, this is profoundly, it profoundly points out that our God's ability to restore people is not limited by our inability to restore broken relationships. That's the message. This passage read prophetically points to God's grace who is beyond all human culpability and even the consequences of human culpability. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, we thank you for uh, this tremendous prophetic word and this prophet you raised up from, from it, being in, in, the, in the womb, God. You had set him apart to do the work that you'd called him to. And Lord, the message is sometimes hard to hear, but it's a message we need to hear in this land where we have so many opportunities to give our allegiance to so many other things and not even realize how subtle it is and how easy it is to do that. But God, you're calling us back to you and you're calling us to do an inventory of our own lives and to look and see what's there. You, God, as a gracious God, extend that invitation to us 
to, to be those, those disciples, those Christians, those followers who truly, truly practice repentance. So I pray that for your people, God, and I pray for your honor and glory that your church will exalt you uh, through this kind of conduct and behavior in Jesus' name. Amen.